I was interacting with a businessman uh, just yesterday, talking to him, and as I departed, he said, Happy Thanksgiving to me. And I turned around and said, Happy Thanksgiving to you. You know, Thanksgiving is my favorite holiday. He said, Mine too. It doesn't cost much money. I hate Christmas. <laughs> well, Christmas is sometimes expensive. And the idea of hating Christmas, it's not the first time I've heard that. In fact, sometimes the holidays are pretty tough. They're rough spots. And you think you're doing all right till Thanksgiving comes and Christmas comes. Sometimes they become chronically difficult. And things go on in our mind and our heart. And we just can't find the joy that we used to find in the Christmas season. So I'm going to talk about these Grinches that steal Christmas. And what I'm going to do is start next week in Galatians chapter 6 because the Apostle Paul mentions a couple of things in that chapter that detract us from our mission and detour us in the work of Christ. Attitudes that in fact sometimes steal Christmas. We're going to find out what the heart is of God and the heart of Christmas. And so I hope that you'll join us starting next week for Grinches that steal Christmas. Today we have perhaps the most famous passage from Galatians. It is Galatians chapter 5. We talk about it a lot. It's the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace. When I get to those virtues, I want you to read them with me, okay? But I'm in Galatians chapter 5, and I'm starting with verse 13. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out. Or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say... Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is, read them with me, love joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. 
So we have this process that the Spirit is involved in. Once we have, by grace, received God's salvation, we have trusted in Christ as Savior, who alone can save us. Nothing that we do can save us. Only Christ. Paul has made that abundantly clear. We are new creations in Him. We start the Christian life, and what do you know? We sin. We're disappointed with ourselves. Maybe a little confused that our behavior hasn't followed our faith like we thought it might. And we wonder what the sanctification process really is now, okay? I know I'm a follower of Jesus, but see how I act. And sometimes we act so terribly that it feels we are again in the grip of sin instead of the grip of grace. And we wonder if we're even Christians, considering how terribly we have sinned. We ask ourselves that question. Sometimes we ask it of other people, can that person really be a follower of Jesus and act that way? And sometimes we ask it of ourselves. Ben Hunter was driving along with his two children. Jackson is four and Kate is five. And Jackson wanted to go to a birthday party, which unfortunately happened on Saturday, not on Wednesday, which was the day it was. He said he wanted to go to the birthday party, and Ben says to him, Jackson, you can't go today. It's not Saturday. It's Wednesday. And his four-year-old had a meltdown in the car. Never happens to you, I'm sure. Okay? And uh, he's just upset, and he's weeping and tears about not being able to go to the birthday party. And he says to his dad, you hurt my feelings. I don't love you. I'm not your son anymore. And the five-year-old Kate is watching this. And Ben says she had this horrified look on her face. And she said, Dad, can he do that? Can he do that? If you have truly trusted Jesus as Savior, God in His grace has made you part of His family. It's not your doing. It's His doing. And it's not something you can undo. The Scripture says no one can pluck you out of the Father's hand when you are His So we hold to the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith because it is a work of God in our heart and we cannot undo it. But sometimes we feel like we have. Sometimes our betrayal is so deep we feel like we have. So in this walk that you are in, which sometimes confuses you, I want to give you and point out to you that you must understand yourself now as a child of God. Understand yourself. You are in a struggle. I can predict that and say that confidently for every believer in this room. You have a struggle going on inside of you. And sometimes it is fierce. And the flesh desires things that are contrary to the spirit and the spirit things that are contrary to the flesh and you cannot do what you want. You can't just do what you want because your desires 
get confused. Now, this struggle is universal, and it is unending as long as you are living on this planet. If we could give you a pill when you leave this room and say, take this pill and you will never struggle with the flesh again, we would give you the pill. But no such remedy exists for you. If we could say to you, if you will just have this spiritual experience, you will never again struggle with, with, with the flesh. Well, we want you to have the experience, but there is no experience, there is no pill, there is no secret knowledge that I could give you today that will take away the struggle that is endemic to your life in the body. You are going to struggle even when you're as old as me. All right? And you may be thinking, once I'm out of these teen years, man, I won't have to fight the flesh anymore. Not so. Not so. In fact, it's a good warning for everybody who's been in Christ a long time that you cannot relax. That's why the proverb says, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Because everybody is susceptible and everybody struggles with these things. Everybody does. And I know you do. The flesh battles against the spirit. And we're not talking about just the meat on your bones. We're talking about that fallen nature that is alienated from God. It's inside of us, this struggle. Sometimes we say, the devil made me do it. And we snicker a little bit because we know that's really his desires that he's fulfilling. It came from inside. The devil is a true, personal, active force of evil in the world. And he's actively seeking to trip you up, okay? And the world in which you live is just as fallen as you are. You look at yourself and you think, man, I wish I could get things together. Why am I not more together, you know? I've been seeking to follow Christ, and I wish I'd matured beyond this point, but I'm still a kind of a mess. Well, the world in which we live is a mess, too. So you go into a school, you go into a business, you go into a profession, and you discover in that school, business, or profession that there are things that are wrong. There's, there's scars of sin. There's systems that are unjust. And it's just true about the world. So you have the world and the devil and the flesh. Evil desires which abide inside of us and there's a list here of the works of the flesh did you see the list of the works of the flesh they're obvious sexual immorality impurity and debauchery idolatry and witchcraft maybe you're reading through this list thinking well I'm, I'm not a witch you know I don't have any idols that I know of in my house. And then it gets to hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy. And before you get to the end of the list, you realize Every soul is tainted with these works of the flesh, including me. And I want to be above the jealousy that rises up in me when I sit down at the Thanksgiving table across from my brother and sister. 
And maybe they drive a nicer car than me and live in a bigger house than mine. And envy starts raising its ugly head. And I'm resentful that they have these things and I don't so much. And I detect in me these things that are listed here as works of the flesh. Now he says at the end of this, people who live this way will not inherit the kingdom of God. And for those of you who might be fighting the doctrines of grace, salvation by grace through faith alone, you see that and you think, see, I told you, if you do these things, you got to do these things and not do these other things in order to be saved. You know, you don't inherit the kingdom of God if you do these things. But Paul is not slipping back into suggesting that we are saved by our works, our deeds, our performance, and our behavior. He's already sealed that. He sealed it in every way he knows how in the last four chapters. He's made it as clear as he can that salvation is a gift from God and it comes to us by his grace. We, we receive it in faith. It's not of us. It's of him, okay? He sealed that. However, just like you suspect sometimes, if a person lives in a lifestyle of these things I've just read, if that's who they are and how they are, there ought to be a serious question mark over their own soul. How can I actually live like this all the time in these kind of behaviors and still be a follower of Christ? The question mark doesn't come because the preacher raises it. It's already in your mind. If you live this way, you wonder. See, you can be trapped you can be ensnared, you can be taken over, you can sin, and you do sin as a believer. There's nobody in here who is sinlessly perfect, all right? God is perfection. One day when you get to heaven, you will be out of the presence of sin. But for now, you struggle like everybody else. John the Apostle says, if we say we have no sin, if somebody were to say that, you know, I've matured to the point where I'm as perfect as God is morally. Well, you're just self-deceived. You're deceiving yourself. The truth is not in you. You can look that up in 1 John 1, 8 and 10. He says, present tense, sin is in us. So we have this question. Well, Lord, I mess up. I fall to the same sin over and over again. How can I be yours and behave this way? And the answer is that struggle goes on in every human heart. Now, you're not to just give up, all right? Sometimes the struggle is so fierce, you think, I'm just going to give up. I'm going to indulge this flesh, this desire of mine. I'm going to create some theological explanation for why it's okay. Even though it's clear that it's not okay, I'm going to figure out some way of saying it's okay for me to live like this. And so I'm going to put to rest the struggle by just indulging the flesh. That's not the answer. You cannot do that. It won't solve the conflict in your soul anyway. If you're truly a child of God and he's called you by his grace and you start living in this way, you're going to be self-conflicted all the time because you know in this lifestyle in which you are now living you are a hypocrite nobody wants to be a hypocrite 
But when you're in a lifestyle like that, if you belong to Jesus, that's not the real you. And you can't settle it in your soul. The conflict never goes away. You don't start feeling good about yourself when you indulge the evil desire. You weaken yourself. In fact, we engage in practices as believers day after day that we know when we walk away from them, our spiritual knees are wobbly. We have just dealt ourselves a spiritual blow by doing this thing. And we hate that which weakens us and betrays our faith in Christ. And yet it draws us back. So what do we do? The Apostle Paul mentions two things, okay? Now, there are other things that we could say about how you can get the victory in your life and walk in a way that honors God. But there are two things that he mentions here as we who have been saved by grace step into a world that's full of trouble and temptation and sometimes we fall, okay? How do we stay true? How do we stay on course? How do we grow in Christ? Two things to remember, all right? The first one, love your neighbor as yourself. Did you notice that he brought that up? It's right here in the passage. You prepare yourself for the walk of grace by loving your neighbor as yourself. That's verse 14. He brings up what Jesus endorsed in his teachings, the great commandment. Jesus said, love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. These two fulfill all the law and the prophets. And the man says, well, who is my neighbor? And so we have the story of the good Samaritan as an explanation for who your neighbor is. But curiously, when James, Peter, John, and Paul come back to the great commission... They could go to not the great commandment, love God with all your heart, but the second, which is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. And they concur that in loving your neighbor as yourself, all the law and the prophets are summarized. So what the Apostle Paul is saying, you who struggle with the flesh, and that's everybody, set this as your intellectual and rational core for behavior, all right? It is a principle, it's a statement, it's an ideal. Love your neighbor as yourself. Some of us are more cognitive in how we live out the Christian life. We need a reason. We need an explanation. And this is the way Jesus points us, and this is the way Paul points us now. If you want to stay true, if you want to keep growing, if you want your life to be conformed to the image of Christ, then set this principle in the, in the core of your being, in the center of your life. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the other commands are summarized in this one. You're going to have difficult dilemmas morally and spiritually and ethically in your business, your profession, your occupation, your life and your relationships. And you're gonna wonder, what's the right thing to do? How do you process that? You process it with this principle. It's not the only principle, but it is the core principle. Love your neighbor 
as yourself. Now, folks who hear that try to diminish it. And some of you are working on it already. <laughs> You're thinking, okay, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, uh, there's the word neighbor. I mean, how do you define neighbor, you know? And so you're working on the word neighbor. And that's just what they did in Jesus' day. All the rabbis were working on the word neighbor. Thinking, you know, who is your neighbor really? I mean, it really was a commandment. And so the expert in the law comes up with this question. Well, who is my neighbor? He comes up with it because it's the key question. If you want to get this command down where you can actually handle it without changing your lifestyle too much, you can work on the word neighbor. So they've been working on it. So they say to Jesus, well, who's my neighbor? And some of you have been thinking, who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells this story of a man who's a different ethnic group. He speaks a different language. He has a different religion. He's in a different economic standing. He falls to thieves who beat him up and rob him and leave him by the side of the road dead. And a Samaritan comes by and sees this man, and he helps him. And Jesus says, that's your neighbor. He never met the man before in the story. He didn't know who he was. Didn't know his name when he turned aside. Brothers and sisters, let's stop working on the definition of neighbor so that we can get this command into manageable proportions. This command is not meant for you to manage. You ought to, at the end of your day, look at love your neighbor as you love yourself and say to yourself, Lord, forgive me. I have failed to keep the command. This command is not something that you're going to get down in the next 10 minutes. It's not something that you're going to fix with an intellectual assent while you sit in the pew. It's not something you're going to finally accomplish in the next 10 days of your existence or 10 months or 10 years. You will wake up every day with this command in your mind. It will draw you higher than you've ever been before. You will never completely fulfill it. When you look at it, you will always see your shortcomings and you will say every day, I don't know anybody who keeps this command. Nobody. And then it will dawn on you, wait, wait, there is somebody I know who kept this command perfectly in every way. His name is Jesus. He is my Lord. He told me this is who my neighbor is. And after he described the actions of the good Samaritan, he said, go and do likewise. I'm telling you, God wants this anchored in the center of your moral life. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. And you say, well, pastor, you haven't talked about loving yourself yet. I know, there's all kinds of things I can't talk about right now. You will unpack this the rest of your life. It's the richest, most wonderful Glorious moral teaching and standard. How am I going to grow in grace? I must love 
my neighbors I love myself. Well, that's costly, Lord. That's dangerous, Lord. That's hard to do. We follow in the footsteps of one who loved his neighbor all the way to the cross. He died naked on a cross, and we call him Lord, and the student is not better than his master. So if this should be your fate in loving your neighbor, count yourself blessed that you, like Jesus, have given your life in the love of others. It is our calling. It's who he has challenged us to be and right now is asking us to be. Don't kick against love of neighbor as Jesus describes it. When you get confused, go back and read again the story of the Good Samaritan. It addresses the question in your heart. You say, well, who is my neighbor then? God will find your neighbor. God will alert you to your neighbor. He will point out your neighbor. When you walk out these doors and you go out into this city, if you are watching and saying, Lord, show me my neighbor, he will show you your neighbor. Do you believe this? He's going to show you. If you're watching, you're going to see your neighbor. I will never forget the day they called, called me out to the lobby and said, there's a lady who wants to talk to you. And I walked into that lobby. This was right after Katrina. And there she stood in clothes that she got from the Salvation Army, ill-fitting. Later on, we started calling her Raggedy Annie. And when I saw her, I got to tell you, my soul sunk. And I thought, oh gosh, again, someone else that has nothing, someone else that's going to have all kind of needs. It's what I thought. To my own shame, here this person is, this lady named Annie, and she's going to have all these needs. It's going to take all kind of time and resources to take care of her. That's what I was thinking. You know, I stopped call, uh, bringing my wallet to church. Y'all know that? There's no wallet in that pocket. My wife said, you come home with a flat wallet every Sunday. So I stopped bringing it. Annie was my neighbor, and I knew it as soon as I saw her. And God used Ann Thompson former candidate for governor and senator in the state of Louisiana to help me understand who these people were hurting and in need to soften my heart and give me a new perspective on the neighbor that God brings my way. And for all of us who know Annie, how many of you knew her? Okay. And helped her, and it took an army. We left the experience so blessed. She died in an apartment that we rented over here on St. John Bayou. She wasn't alone. She was among friends. 
If you're feeling down about Christmas and the holiday season in your life in general, I challenge you now. Keep your eyes open for the Annie God's sending your way. You will discover if you are willing to love her as you love yourself, to try to love her that way, you will discover that Jesus was right. It is more blessed to give than to receive. And I can predict of you that you will leave the love of neighbor, that deed of kindness and compassion, with a smile on your face and a different view in your heart, and you will feel God's done something in me. I don't know what God will do in that neighbor that you love, but I can predict what God will do in you. He will grow you in his grace. That's the first of your two feet. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. What's the second one? Live, walk, and abide in the spirit. For those of you who deal experientially, you have this command, love your neighbor, which addresses your intellect, the reason why we do what we do. And you have the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit within you. And you must remind yourself day after day of these two central truths that are the process of your sanctification. This is how God changes you. With the love of neighbor as a central core and the, and the abiding Holy Spirit with whom you walk. Now, you're supposed to keep pace with the Spirit. The Spirit can walk faster than you. You realize that, right? When little Graham, who's almost three, grabs my finger, I slow down so he can walk with me, right? And I tell him, pick up your feet, because he trips too much. So sometimes he'll walk like this. But Graham has an attention span about like this. And we take two steps, and he says, squirrel. <laughs> you know the syndrome, right? And he's gone. And he can't really stay in step because he's just too busy doing a lot of other things, okay? So the Holy Spirit, who can walk much faster than you, knows exactly who you are and where you are in your character and your walk with him. And so he's got a pace that is tailored for you. Can you receive this? The Holy Spirit has a pace tailored just for you. And he wants you to walk with him. He's going to lead you day by day. He's, gonna, he's going to... Order your steps day by day so that you grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Word of God. To be led by the Spirit, to walk in the Spirit, to abide in the Spirit, to follow the Spirit. This is the call that God gives. Now, every follower of Jesus, everyone who has trusted Him as Savior has the abiding Holy Spirit within to direct your thoughts, your deeds, and your actions. These two things then, every day, uppermost in your mind. Lord, as I leave this place, as I walk out into your world, help me to love my neighbor and walk in the Spirit. Bow with me, please. Lord, we pray now that you would impress upon our minds and hearts exactly what each of us need. You know where we are spiritually, every one of us. 
whether we're feeling alienated from you and so far gone, we don't know if we can get back. Feeling like the prodigal son, having spent everything and now we're in a foreign country. God, wherever we are, you know and understand. And I pray for that brother or sister who came into this room and is furthest away from where they ought to be. I pray by your grace you will draw them. Lord, that you will show them your love for them and their need of you and that they have a place in the Father's house and at the Father's table. Lord, I pray for the saints who are given up on themselves that you will draw them to yourself, God. Lord, I pray that you will help us purify our actions, our motives by loving you and walking in the Spirit, loving our neighbors, ourself. God, help us do it. Lord, help us be faithful to the call placed in our life. Help us joyfully follow you in the work of grace to which you've called us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.